Uh, well, George Christian has, is here so we can begin. Uh, Bernard Wasserstein represents the University of Chicago, but as you will know from his name, Wasserstein, he is a Scot. Uh, and we have two uh, Glaswegians who are actually students in my own course. We're, we're, there they are, right there. This is quite, quite extraordinary. <laughs> uh, Bernard gave a talk here several years ago about Glasgow, growing up in Glasgow. And there was a fellow Scot who was actually from Glasgow, and she didn't like at all what uh, Bernard said about the... Uh, City, and I was reminded of all this in a comment just a few days ago in the New York Times, which describes Glasgow as a desperately grim place, not unlike parts of America, now ravaged. It was staggered by alcoholism, environmental hazards, high suicide rates, corruption, gang warfare, loss of industrial jobs and a significant rise in drug, drug abuse that almost matches Chicago. <laughs> so this uh, raises the question of what it was like at the same time in the land of milk and honey and how Jerusalem would compare to this uh, description. And this is what Bernard is going to talk about, the end of the British Empire in Palestine. Thank you, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing in his life became him like the leaving it. The death of the Thane of Kordor, thus reported by Malcolm to Duncan in Act 1, Scene 4 of, Hamlet, of Macbeth. Uh, the poor Thane who never even gets to make an appearance in person in the play, enters English literary memory solely via that brief posthumous encomium. And the British Empire is often eulogized in like manner. No doubt empires after 1945 were pernicious and doomed. Nevertheless, we are often told, nothing became the British like the way they left theirs. The peaceful handover of sovereignty in colony after colony was a model of imperial abnegation almost without parallel. True, there were violent exceptions like Kenya or Cyprus or Aden, but in general, uh, the process was nonviolent in sharp contrast with other imperial endings, such as those of the Dutch in the East Indies or the Portuguese in Mozambique and Angola and so forth. Those of us who grew up in Britain in the post-war decades recall the newsreel footage as the British flag was lowered in colony after colony all the way from the Gold Coast in 1957 to Hong Kong in 1997 those epic scenes you may recall. The British mandate in Palestine was unique in many ways, in particular in the way of its ending on the 15th of May, 1948. As has often been noted, this was the only, the only dependent territory from which 
Britain ever withdrew without handing over authority to any successor government. Refusing to commit to implement the United Nations Partition Resolution for Palestine of the 29th of November 1947, the British government embraced an apparent policy of après nous le déluge. Indeed, that is the accusation voiced in several accounts of the end of the mandate. Arthur Kostler, for example, dubbed the British withdrawal Operation Deluge. Ze'ev Sharef, Secretary of the Provisional Government of Israel at its inception and the man chiefly responsible for the construction of the state's administrative machine in 1948, wrote in his memoir, Chaos was implicit in the British government's decision. The British departure plan ruled out any transfer of government institutions and public services to the trustworthy charge of the successor authority, and this inimical official attitude could not, have, could not but have a provocative effect on the individuals carrying out the plan. I recall an interview in 1970 with one of the officials involved in that end of the mandate, um, John Sheringham, who had been a senior official in Palestine. And even 22 years after the event, he told me he felt shame at this policy of scuttle. So far as he was concerned, nothing less became the British than, uh, uh, nothing less became the British than their manner of leaving Palestine. Was he right? There can be little argument that at the level of high policy making in London, the end of the Palestine mandate was marked by a despairing anxiousness, anxiety on the part of the British government to wash its hands of Palestine. Uh, uh, which was, in 1947, tying down 100,000 British troops and security forces. And by the way, that is more than the entire strength of the British armed forces today. But 100,000 men were tied down. And this was at a time when Britain was on its knees economically uh, and dependent really on uh, the prospect of a, uh, an American loan to, for its economy to survive. Um, so it was desperately anxious uh, to get out at whatever cost at the level of high policy. And unwilling to be seen as aiding and abetting partition of Palestine and the consequent creation of a Jewish state there for fear of its collapse of its influence in the entire Middle East, Britain abstained in the UN vote on the 29th of November, forbade the UN Palestine Commission, charged with implementing the, the uh, partition, even to set foot in Palestine. It forbade it to set foot in Palestine until the 1st of May 1948, 15 days before the British left. In fact, apart from a small advance party in March, the Partition Commission never actually arrived in Palestine because on, it was disbanded for reasons we needn't, needn't enter into on the 14th of May. So that was what Britain did at the level of high policy. But if we turn our attention from London to Jerusalem, does a different picture emerge? Now in an article published 30 years ago by 
mine host, uh, William Roger Lewis. Um, uh, uh, Professor Lewis analysed the role of the head of the government of Palestine, the High Commissioner in Jerusalem, Sir Alan Cunningham. On the basis of a scrutiny of his contemporary papers, um, Lewis, if I may refer to you thus, uh, to some extent solved Cunningham's reputation, concluding that whatever his other failings, which he enumerated, he in Palestine presided over a well I'm quoting now, presided over a well-organized and carefully planned withdrawal that took place entirely according to plan. Others have been more critical. The Palestinian historian Issa Khalaf, for example, complains that the withdrawal was, I quote, confused and disorderly, having taken place under conditions of almost complete anarchy. And that's a view that's echoed by both Israeli and Palestinian historians down to the present. Most of them. Cunningham was primarily concerned with trying to preserve some semblance of peace uh, in Palestine and to minimize bloodshed. He saw his job, Lewis writes, principally as holding the ring while the civil administration closed down and British troops evacuated. From the Olympian Heights of Government House in Jerusalem, built on a hill, uh, the hill of evil counsel, uh, allegedly uh, from the New Testament, um, he largely delegated the handling of the withdrawal to his officials. Now let's descend, and this is what I'd like to do today, uh, let's descend to those lower levels and survey what happened in the government offices and in the towns and villages of Palestine between the two dates that are behind me, between the UN partition vote and the British uh, uh, withdrawal from Palestine as the struggle for the succession to the mandate intensified. And before we perform that uh, exercise, let me just mention three contextual points. First, the fact that in spite of its long history and experience of imperial acquisition, Britain in the spring of 1948 had as yet little experience of imperial deaccession. Among the few notable instances of that were Iraq in 1932 and the more recent instance in August 1947 of, of India. And both of those were followed by terrible bloodshed. Neither offered a promising model for emulation. And the second contextual point, the withdrawal was a colossal logistic exercise. It involved the transshipment of 55,000 military personnel, that's as of the 1st of December 1947, it had gone down from its high point, 6,000 British police and officials, the disposal of massive quantities of government assets of all kinds, and the removal or destruction of a quarter of a million tons of military stores. And the third point, the withdrawal took place against the background, of course, as we know, of civil war that was already taking place between Arabs and Jews and of Jewish attacks against British military targets. The carnage was horrific and the British were powerless to contain it. By early 1948, the government of Palestine was clearly, as the American consul in Jerusalem reported on the 9th of February, 
inner state of disintegration. Now, the managing director of Britain's, of the mandatory administration's withdrawal was not, in fact, the High Commissioner. It was a, a lower official, a man called Eric Mills. He had served continuously in Palestine since the start of British rule in December 1917. With the title Commissioner on Special Duty, Mills was charged with advising on and, in effect, supervise, overseeing, supervising the the liquidation of the mandatory government. Isaiah Berlin, who had met Mills on his first visit to Palestine in 1934, called him a clever, disillusioned, cynical person. But like some of Berlin's snap judgments, this was unfair, I believe. Mills, who had been controller of the 1931 census of Palestine, incidentally the only census of the whole of the area, of what is now Israel and the West Bank that ever took place, the only serious census, um, uh, and who had also been director of manpower during the Second World War, was in fact an able and conscientious administrator. And whatever degree of success the, oper the withdrawal operation enjoyed must be attributed, success or failure, uh, must be attributed in large measure to him. Now, immediately upon the UN partition vote in November, Mills issued a draft general scheme for withdrawal. And this provided for the transfer of government fixed assets, such as post offices, schools, telephone exchanges, and hospitals, as well as vehicles, machinery, records, and stores, as far as possible to local authorities, pending the emergence of successor governments which British did not want to be responsible for handing over to. Um, the Public Works Department, accordingly, prepared voluminous handing over notes on public utilities and infrastructure, such as water and sewage works, roads and bridges, machinery, and surveying instruments. In early 1948, Instructions were issued for the selective destruction of government records, of course, particularly of interest to historians. And the guiding principle was, I quote, to destroy as much as possible that does not involve frustration of a successor administration. Among the records designated to be spared were those concerning births, marriages and deaths, nationality and citizenship. Most other so-called secret registry files, however, were to be destroyed. An exception was made for files, I quote, whose destruction would frustrate a successor government, provided that their publication would not embarrass HMG, Her Majesty's government, or injure an individual. In doubtful cases, I'm still quoting, in doubtful cases, the degrees of frustration or embarrassment must be weighed against each other. End of quotation. Now, files in the top secret registry were all to be destroyed or downgraded before Z-Day, which I'll translate for you, Z-Day, uh, <laughs> the last day of British rule behind me. All other files were to be stored and then handed over to the UN Commission. Mills suggested, for example, that the, uh, the plans and field records of the surveys department, which alone comprised six tons, might be shipped to England. 
The process of destruction and preservation, however, turned out to be more haphazard. Many papers scheduled for destruction were preserved. None at all appear to have been transferred to the UN. Some were shipped to Cyprus. Others were sent to England and opened to researchers at various points after 1966, some as late as 2013. Those remaining in Palestine, for the most part, ended up in archives in Israel, and much of what I report here today is drawn from those. All documents bearing on security were supposed to be destroyed, but many in fact survived. Bank vaults in Jerusalem with a capacity of 135 cubic meters were set aside for secure storage of government files. But the fighting in Jerusalem was particularly severe around the Barclays Bank building. In fact, I think you can still see on the facade of that building the, uh, the bullet marks and, and uh, shell holes and so forth. Any files stored there well, uh, uh, sorry, uh, that was the, the, that, uh, Barclays Bank was the government bank, so that was probably the bank that they had in mind. Now, the fighting there was particularly severe, and it ended up just on the Israeli side of the final demarcation line in Jerusalem, which you'll remember was divided at the end of the war in 1948 into the east, controlled by Jordanian forces, and the West controlled by Israeli. So it ended up just on the Israeli side. Any files stored there were probably among those captured by a SWAT team of Israeli archivists, specially commissioned for the task of scouring government buildings uh, for files and scooping them up while the war was still raging. And overall, uh, a surprising amount of important documentation survived. Uh, luckily for historians. In his liquidation planning, Mills had proposed that the income tax files, which he said, which are confidential, he wrote, be moved to England for safekeeping pending their transfer to a successor government. But that seems not to have been done. At the end of March, the tax records were still in place in the government offices, and the finance secretary ordered that, I'm quoting now, in view of their bulk, uh, local authorities should be asked to arrange for their safe custody. That this is the best that we can do, he wrote resignedly. And in a massive transfer in Tel Aviv on the 10th of May, just before the end of the mandate, five days before, all tax and other financial and legal records for the city of Tel Aviv, the largest Jewish city in Palestine, as well as all other Jewish towns and settlements in the coastal area were deposited with the Tel Aviv municipality, I quote, in trust pending the constitution of a successor government. Now one other British uh, bureaucratic legacy that proved to be of critical importance, in this case particularly to many Palestinian Arabs, was the accumulation of land records, particularly registers of land ownership, which the British uh, uh, mandatory government made considerable efforts to preserve. Mill emphasized that the, uh, Mills <coughs> emphasized that the land registers were, as he wrote, of vital importance to the whole country. And he ordered that microfilm copies should be made. At least some were photographed, but the volume of such records rendered the task of mic microfilming them all uh, unfeasible. The remainder of those in Jerusalem were stored under Red Cross protection in the YMCA building, today a four-star hotel. Fortunately, 
a large proportion survived intact and are today in Israeli archives and are much consulted by lawyers um, dealing with Palestinian Arab land issues. But let me move on from records. What was to be done, uh, for example, with prisoners? In the absence of an assured continuity of service by prison guards, they could hardly be left behind, locked up, uh, just to, to rot away. Now, serious British citizen offenders could be moved to the UK, but what about Palestinians, Arabs and Jews? A partial amnesty was granted in less serious cases, uh, reducing the prison population. It had already been substantially diminished by the, uh, by the time we're dealing with, uh, by the escape of 251 prisoners from the Acre prison in a famous breakout in uh, uh, May 1947, and the further 18 escaped in December. By the middle of March 1948, only 2,177 prisoners remained in custody, and those included 407 political detainees, Arabs and Jews, and 110 criminal lunatics, as they were called. It was decided to release nearly all the political detainees. Further releases of ordinary prisoners reduced the total to 1,200. The remaining Jewish and Arab convicts uh, were redistributed to prisons within the territories of their respective proposed states under the UN resolution, and confidential contacts were established with the Jewish agency, the embryo government of Israel, and the Arab Higher Committee, representing Arab nationalists in Palestine, whereby they agreed to take responsibility for their prisoners after the 15th of May. Then there was the problem of the railways. Even had the British been ready to hand it over, the railway system, to successor states, that could not be partitioned. It was a unified system for the country as a whole. So what would be done with the buildings, rolling stock and personnel? In a memo on the 12th of April 1948, the general manager of the railways despaired of any easy solution. Noting that the system had already suffered severely from looting and destruction, he feared that the entire organisation would soon disintegrate. By the end of the mandate, hardly any trains were in fact running. Nevertheless, on the 13th of May, the last chief accountant of the Palestine Railways transferred to his Jewish successor in Haifa the keys to the office, there, the head office of the, of the Palestine Railways, uh, the keys also to the safes, as well as, and I'm quoting now, two spare motors for the accounting machines, several sporting trophies, also an automatic pistol, my own personal property, which he wrote, please hand over to the proper authorities. He didn't say what those authorities were, of course. And he concluded, almost as if he was speaking at a retirement party and handing over a gold watch, I take this opportunity of thanking you most sincerely for your long and valuable service with the Palestine Railways and wishing you a happy and prosperous future. <laughs> well, while men and goods could be withdrawn, the same did not apply so easily to beasts. What about the 257 horses and 27 camels of the Palestine police? 
Mills noted that the animals represented an asset that should, strictly speaking, be transferred to the United Nations at the end of the mandate. But apparently he didn't particularly trust international control of such valuable assets. He expressed concern that there is every reason for supposing that the animals cannot be tended and fed after the administration ends. The Inspector General of Police declared himself most anxious that no horses should be left ownerless at the termination of the mandate. And he proposed as a humane measure, therefore, that horses above the age of 12 years should be destroyed. Many were, in fact, sent to the Naka's yard. The remainder were offered for sale at 30 Palestinian pounds each. It was a bargain price, but there were a few takers, and uh, there were few takers, and in the end it was decided to reduce the price to 15 pounds and to divide them, as it were, to partition them, as it were, by nationality. Those, uh, the Jewish horses, as it were, those in Jewish areas would be sold to Jewish buyers, and those in Arab areas to Arabs. And as for the camels, they were to be offered to Bedouin sheikhs in, sheikhs in Beersheba. But then there was a related issue, particularly dear, of course, to British hearts. Mills proposed that police dogs were to be offered to other colonial governments, unless, as he put it, a properly constituted successor authority requires them. He added, and I want you to listen carefully to this, because I'm now quoting precise, the precise words he wrote. He wrote, masters may be transferred with them. The dogs speak Afrikaans. <laughs> dogs and masters work together. The dogs are not domestic. It may be best to destroy them, since we cannot feed them after departure." Unquote. Well, all that, of course, no doubt testifies to the notorious British concern for the welfare of dumb animals. In many respects, the withdrawal did not proceed as smoothly in real life as in Mills's scheme. Not all local authorities were able or willing to take responsibility for institutions that were to be transferred to them. In Nablus, for example, the Arab town of Nablus, the municipality declared itself unable to afford the expense of maintaining the government hospital after the 15th of May. The government rejected an appeal, the central government rejected an appeal for transition funding for the hospital, and the district commissioner advised the mayor of Nablus to, as he put it, I'm quoting his letter now, to take the matter up with whatever Arab authority or body he thinks fit in order to obtain assistance. Drawings of buildings in Jaffa, Haifa and Nazareth districts were stolen in transit from the Public Works Department to the local authorities. They probably ended up in, in the hands of their Israeli successors. And here we reach a critical point in this, this discussion. Because the government's superficially non-political approach of handing over to local authorities obscured what I would argue is an underlying reality of acquiescence in the partition of Palestine. And that is because, in fact, nearly all local authorities in Palestine were controlled either by Jews or by Arabs. There were only four that weren't, in fact. In the case of municipalities, almost all were wholly or largely mono-ethnic. The, the two, Tel Aviv and, and Netanya, for example, were Jewish, Nablus and Hebron were Arab. The two most important exceptions were Jerusalem, the capital, and Haifa. Let me say a word about each of those. 
Owing to the inability of Arabs and Jews to agree on the choice of a mayor, the Jerusalem municipality had been under the control since 1945 of an unelected commission which replaced the town council. It was headed in the final months of the mandate by a retired Palestine government official, Richard Graves. Incidentally, the brother of the, the poet, Robert Graves. A bomb attack in December 1947 led all the Jewish officials to leave the municipality building and move to a separate office in a Jewish district. Graves tried without success to, pers to persuade them to return. On the 25th of April, he recorded in his diary, government have instructed me to recognize unofficially, so to speak, the new Jewish municipal committee appointed to look after the Jewish area. Unquote. In the very last days of the mandate, remaining Jerusalem municipal funds were split. A cheque for £30,000 was issued to the head of the Jewish Municipal Committee and one for £27,500, I'm not sure why it was a slightly lower amount, was handed to a representative of the Arab section of the city. Now as for Haifa, uniquely in Palestine, it was designated as a reserved enclave where British military occupation would persist for several weeks after the withdrawal date, after Z Day, after the 15th of May, while the army completed its withdrawal through what was Palestine's most important port. But by the 21st of April, the Haganah, the Jewish underground army uh, in the civil war that was already raging, as I mentioned, had won control over Haifa, except for the British-controlled port area and the main road and the airport of the city, small airport. Over the next few days, most of Haifa's Arab population fled in British army and navy convoys. Here, the British not, didn't just acquiesce in partition, they colluded, <coughs> at least this is one way of looking at it, I think a, a reasonable way of looking at it, they colluded in what we would now call ethnic cleansing because it was the British who shipped out the Arabs from Haifa. The government and the Haifa municipality agreed that as of the 15th of May, the municipality would take over, I'm quoting now from the handover documents, control and management of the Port Authority with the proviso that it would provide full facilities for the completion of the withdrawal of British forces. And at a meeting on the 12th of May, most of the Port Authority files and accounts uh, were handed over to representatives of the municipality, I'm quoting, in the capacity of a trustee pending the establishment of a settled form of government in Palestine. Well, we're already seeing that the notion that the British just burnt all the files and skipped out doesn't conform with reality. Now, in some cases, the government machine was not so much bequeathed successors as disemboweled from within. By the end of March, the 30,000 Palestinian, Arab and Jewish, civil servants were being supervised by just 200 remaining British officials. In these circumstances, Jewish and Arab officials of the government, who of course had nothing now to look forward to, except maybe their pensions, from the British, scrambled 
to seize control of what remained of the administrative apparatus. And I'll just mention one example, a very interesting example of that, and that's the fate of the Palestine Broadcasting Service, the, the government-controlled monopoly broadcaster in Palestine. The PBS had been founded in 1936 and it broadcast in English, Arabic and Hebrew from its transmitter in Ramallah, 10 miles north of Jerusalem. In his withdrawal scheme, Mills had proposed that the PBS should continue to transmit a news service up to the last, up to Z-Day. He advised that when that was no longer possible, consideration should be given to removing, I'm quoting from his scheme, vital parts to, il to immobilize the transmitter to prevent mischief makers misusing it, unquote. By late 1947, in indeed, the, the broadcasting studios in Jerusalem had perforce been split up. The, the Hebrew service employees, fearful of attacks, had moved with their files, record and records and equipment to Rechavia, a Jewish district, while the Arabic service remained in broadcasting house in Musrara, an Arab district. In January 1948, the PBS program planning was decentralized so that the Arabic and Hebrew services were completely separate, except that all broadcasts still went out through the Ramallah transmitter, and each service operated now with, its, with separate bank accounts. By late April, Jerusalem was in a state of siege. The division of the service was almost complete, although broadcasting continued until the last day of the mandate. When the Ramallah transmitter was damaged in the fighting, Transmissions were divided too. The Arabic ones went out from reserve equipment in Ramallah, the Hebrew ones on, low power, on a low-powered emergency transmitter in the general post office building in Jerusalem. The war left the Ramallah transmitter station in Jordanian hands and the Jerusalem headquarters building under Israeli control. But the broadcasting service had already been trans partitioned before the 15th of May. As the assistant director of the service, Rex Keating, later recalled, the PBS examples was quickly followed by other departments, despite all the efforts of government to stop them. The split became total. In effect, he wrote, the incipient Israeli government was being realized. And his emphasis on the Israeli success in this is important because the Zionists with their pre-existing institutional apparatus, a state in the making since the 1920s, um, in fact co-opted most of the Jewish mandatory officials as civil servants of the new state even before the end of May. Meanwhile, the Arab higher committee headed from exile by the ex-mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, proved itself toothless and internally divided. It had no significant institutional foundations in Palestine. Palestinian Arab society, unlike Jewish, depended heavily on government services in such matters as education, health and social welfare. By early May, in any case, all but one of the members of the Arab Higher Committee had fled the country. The committee requested of Arab officials that they should take charge of government departments and where they could, some did so. But the arrival uh, in the eastern part of the mandate area of Arab Legion forces from Transjordan, loyal to King Abdallah of Jordan, led them 
to see, led these officials to see him and not the Arab Higher Committee, the Palestinian body, as their likely future employer. Quite apart from Abdallah's military power, which rested on the British officered Arab Legion, Abdallah had other advantages. He ruled, after all, an existing state that had close links with sections of the Palestinian notable elite, and he enjoyed continuing British military, <coughs> diplomatic and economic support. An attempt by the Mufti later in 1948 to set up a so-called all-Palestine government in Egyptian-occupied Gaza <coughs> soon collapsed. Abdallah swept aside any pretensions of the Palestinian Arabs to a separate nationalism and united the two banks of the Jordan under his autocratic rule, in other words, Transjordan and what we now call the West Bank. That's why it's called the West Bank, because it's a Western part of what, what, what became, until 1967, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Now, Mills's scheme did not, of course, make provision for the armed forces, which operated under a separate withdrawal plan. He was responsible only for the civil government. And both Jews and Arabs complained bitterly at the time and ever since that British military actions in 1948 uh, favoured the other side. The military withdrawal plan required the army to abstain from involvement in fighting between Jews and Arabs. It was to concentrate on holding lines of communication for withdrawal. But as Benny Morris has written in his History of the 1948 War, I'm quoting from him, his book now, uh, the guideline of impartiality translated into a policy of quietly assisting each side in the takeover of areas in which that side was dominant. At the same time, there was large-scale, uh, I've finished the quotation now, at the same time, there was large-scale looting of arms and military stores and a flourishing black market in military equipment. And a fascinating picture of the underside of the military withdrawal is provided in a source that has been little noticed by historians, although it's freely available on the internet. It's not, not been published as, as a book. I wish it were. And that is the diary and memoir. It's a memoir which con includes large quotations from a contemporary diary of Ivan Wilkes, uh, Ivor Wilkes. In 1948, a 20-year-old second lieutenant in the British Army in Palestine. As a satire on army life, Wilkes's narrative bears comparison with, uh, I think, with Evelyn Waugh, uh, Evelyn Waugh's Sword of Honor trilogy. But Wilkes was not only a gifted writer, he was also a socialist and an intellectual who later became a professional historian. He ended his career as a, a neighbor of mine. Alas, I never met him. He's, he died a few years ago. He ended his career as a distinguished professor of African history at Northwestern University in Chicago. And his faux naïf memoir is an extraordinary historical, literary, and human document. And allow me to take a few minutes to, to show how fascinating it is. From the 23rd of December, 1947, Wilkes was stationed at an army base near Haifa where petroleum was stored for the army. The base was situated between two villages, one Jewish, the other Arab. Jewish Nesher, Arab Balad al-Sheikh. One of Wilkes's responsibilities was 
to measure each night, it had to be done at night for technical reasons, uh, uh, the amount of petrol in storage tanks on the base. After a time, he noticed discrepancies in the reported and actual amounts of petrol in the tanks. He discovered that a diversionary pipe had been opened and large amounts of petrol were being siphoned off for use by uh, a small uh, contingent of Syrian forces who had infiltrated into the Arab village of Balad al-Sheikh. He also learned that his commanding officer, Captain Webster, was illicitly permitting a Haganah, Jewish underground army unit in Nesher, to abstract empty jerry cans of, uh, for, for, for oil. Now Webster, a marvellous character which war could not have invented. War, uh, Webster, a closet homosexual with a Batman who was as flamboyant in his sexual orientation as his master was secretive in his, Webster had one passionate desire that he shared with nearly all his fellow soldiers in Palestine, and that was, of course, to get home as soon as possible. One day, Wilkes learned that Webster was supplying the Haganah not only with old jerry cans, but with arms from the camp that were surplus to requirements. I hate doing this, but <laughs> surplus to requirements. And Wilkes protested, and I now quote from Wilkes's memoir, which, as I say, is based on his contemporary diary. He protested to Webster. To supply the Jews with old and battered jerry cans was one thing. Firearms and ammunition were quite another. I, Wilkes, was certainly not ill-disposed towards the Palestinian Arabs, and I'd come to like working with them. Many of them worked in the camp, you see. I pointed this out to Webster. I take these things very seriously, he said. But you must remember that it's not your workers who are leading the Liberation Army. It is men who collaborated with the Nazis and came to believe that the Jews should be exterminated. At this point in the conversation, I decided to press him on the nature of his relationship, uh, sorry, nature of his arrangement with Nesher's Haganah unit. His answer took me completely by surprise. Praf. Praf was Webster's Haganah contact in Nesher. Praf, he said, uh, and I talked the matter over, and Praf suggested that a handgun should be valued at 15 pa Palestinian pounds and ammunition at around one pound for 10,000 rounds. I, Wilkes, was taken aback. I'd been brought up to think of arms trading as reprehensible. <laughs> I said something to that effect to Webster. His reply took me by surprise, and I can only recollect the gist of it. I am, he said, uh, uh, or well, effect, I am a businessman by profession. And I was doing business with Praf. I was giving him a good deal, because they would rather get a bargain from a businessman than a, receive a free gift from a do-gooder. <laughs> well, concludes this section of his memoir by saying, I, I was more than a little impressed by this gem of capitalistic wisdom. <laughs> now, Webster was undoubtedly an outlier in his political outlook, as in his sexuality. Uh, there is ample evidence that British troops, prompted by a mixture of anti-Semitism, stoked by Jewish terrorism, and profiteering, 
transferred large amounts of military equipment to the Arabs. Wilkes himself, although drawn to socialist Zionism, as he freely describes in his memoir, nevertheless participated almost without realizing what was going on in a large delivery of British arms from Haifa to the Egyptian army at the border just south of Gaza. Wilkes was attracted to Zionism by modern ideology. A sexual innocent, he was suborned by Valentina, a young Jewish woman in Haifa, who introduced him to so-called friends, who turned out to be Haganah agents. And Wilkes relates how, at the request of one of Valentina's friends, a man called Dan Lanner, later an Israeli major general, uh, Wilkes relates how he helped spirit a consignment of Czechoslovak arms through the Haifa port for the Palmach, the elite striking force of the Haganah. In the last days of the mandate, Wilkes found himself caught up in negotiations between the Mukhtar village head of Balad al-Sheikh and the Haganah unit in Nesher who demanded the surrender of arms that had been left behind by the Syrian infiltrators that I mentioned a little earlier. Now, the Arabs in Balad al-Sheikh produced very little by way of arms, perhaps very little had been left, and the Haganah announced that they would conduct a search of Balad al-Sheikh. They announced this in advance. The villagers, without the end of April, no doubt mindful of the massacre of Arab civilians by Jewish terrorists at the village of Deir Yassin near Jerusalem two weeks earlier did not wait to see how such a search would, be, would turn out. At midnight on the 24th of April, Wilkes recorded the aftermath in his diary. The Arabs have gone, carrying what they could with them. The rest has been looted. The few belongings they had to leave and the horses, goats and fowl. I don't know what would have happened had the Arabs allowed an immediate search of the town. I believe that even the Haganah commander would have left them in the town once sure that it was neutralized by the handing over of the arms. But the Arabs, by and large, believed that their lives were in danger and fled. It's the end of the quotation. Now, Wilkes was troubled about his own role in that miserable affair. And his mind was not eased when at their final meeting, the uh, uh, final meeting he had with Dan Lanner, the Haganah agent. Uh, Lanner, and I'm quoting again from, uh, from the diary, Lanner produced a watch from his case and passed it to me. <coughs> it was Swiss. It seemed to be gold. And it had a multiplicity of small dials. I was unsure what I was supposed to do. Should I admire it and pass it back? Lana saw that I was embarrassed. It's a present, he said. He said simply, you were a great help to us in avoiding a heavy loss of life in Balad al-Sheikh. I have never been sure, wrote Wilkes in his memoir, whether I should have accepted that watch. But I did, and I have it to this day. In his tedious, lonely life on the army base, Wilkes fantasized about taking Valentina back to England as his bride. Only at the end, 
in a bitter disclosure scene did he find out that she herself was an Haganah agent who had bedded him, as well as other British soldiers, as a matter more of duty than of love. On the 14th of May, the High Commissioner departed, the State of Israel was declared, and the Palestinian Nakba, or catastrophe, took shape. Although the mandate terminated at midnight, some British forces remained in the Haifa enclave, which was gradually reduced in size until the 30th of June, and Wilkes was among those who left on that very last day. So what emerges from all this? The proposition that the British simply washed their hands of Palestine cannot be sustained at any rate as regards the men on the spot. John and David Kimchi, for example, and others like them, including I must say myself in early writings, uh, were far from accurate in their claim, I'm quoting the Kimchis now, that there had been no attempt to transfer government and administrative matters to the Jews and the Arabs. The British officials, they wrote, the Kimchi brothers, uh, burnt their files, destroyed their records and departed. I don't think that can be sustained on the basis of what we now know. Notwithstanding the British government's public stance of non-involvement, the mandatory administration did not pursue a scorched earth policy, nor did the British limit themselves to seeking an even balance between the warring parties. It would be more correct to say that in the final weeks of the mandate, they participated directly in the implementation of partition. And in doing so, they helped pave the way for the establishment of Israel and for King Abdallah's takeover of the West Bank. And the last words go fittingly to Eric Mills in something that he wrote with some foresight, I think, in as early as 1936. It was, he penned this epitaph that, uh, that he wrote in a letter to the head of the Palestine to the man who became head of the Palestine Broadcasting Service, Edwin Samuel. But to appreciate it, I have to just explain one thing, and that is uh, these two Hebrew letters here, Aleph Yud. They stand, for, uh, they stand for Eretz Yisrael, the first two letters of, uh, which is, means the land of Israel in Hebrew. In the early days of the mandate, there was much controversy arising from the Zionist demand that the Hebrew name of the country should appear on all official documents that were written in one of the three official languages of Palestine, namely Hebrew. Um, but there was some resistance to this, and in the end, the compromise was adopted, and the short form, Aleph Yud, but not the full name, Eretz Israel, was printed on postage stamps, coins, and so forth, together with the English uh, Palestine, the Arabic Philistine, and the Hebrew transliteration, uh, Palestina. So it was Aleph Yud Palestina, Eretz Israel. So just to, you'll understand now why, why I say this, because here is Mills's epitaph. Here lies Palestine, Aleph Yod. Have mercy on her soul, Lord God. Unwanted child of Arab and Jew, she needs no love, so let your tears be few. Ha, <laughs> ha,